Hello, and welcome to Hansard But Sleepy, for people who love Parliament, and for people who love sleep. Today, we'll be reading excerpts from Volume 660 on the 22nd of May, 2019. Let's get started. Information Disclosure Pre-trial Abuse of Process Hearings The 22nd of May, 2019 Volume 660 11am Dame Cheryl Dame Cheryl Gillen Representing Chesham and Amersham for the Conservatives. I beg to move that this House has considered the disclosure of information in pre-trial abuse of process hearings. As usual, it is a pleasure to serve under your chairmanship, Mr. Robertson. I am pleased to welcome the Minister who will respond. I am very pleased to have secured this debate to raise a matter that concerns a constituent of mine, Mr. Tom Perry. The Minister will be aware of the problems arising from failures of disclosure that continue to confront the criminal justice system. Those problems received the attention of the Attorney General in his 11th of December 2017 review, which reported on the 15th of November last year. One of the worst cases, which was reported in the Times on the 21st of May last year, concerned five defendants who spent seven years in jail after being wrongly convicted of the murder of Muhammad Afsar. Unfortunately, there is another aspect to that disclosure problem, which, despite it repeated requests from my constituent, the Attorney General has so far refused to examine to his satisfaction. I applied for this debate to try elicit a response to the concerns of my constituent, who is in the public gallery. Although my constituent's case is long since over, the abiding issue is the dual and interconnected problem of a non-disclosure by the defence in criminal proceedings in situations where a duty of disclosure rests on the defendant and his or her legal team, and the apparent impossibility of procuring corrections by solicitors and counsel of such failures of disclosure 
learned of erroneous submissions, consequently made by them to the court. The procurement of such corrections is part of the professional disclosure obligations that counsel must make to prevent the possibility of a court being misled. Generally, in criminal proceedings, the duty of disclosure rests not on the defendant, but on the prosecution. Exceptionally, however, in cases where the defendant wishes to make an application for an indictment against him to be stayed on permissible grounds under our criminal law and procedure, principally that to allow the indictment to proceed to trial would amount to an abuse of process. A duty of disclosure rests on the defendant and their legal team to make a full disclosure of all relevant matters, whether or not they are entitled to such an order being made for their benefit. One class of case in which that frequently occurs is that of non-recent child abuse. Applications for stay indictments in those cases are most often heard in non-evidential proceedings in which oral submissions are made to the judge only without any evidence actually being given. As the judge is wholly dependent on the oral submissions made to him, the absence of the production of evidence makes it easier to mislead a court than would otherwise be the case. I am told that there is growing evidence of malpractice arising from this procedure. Jim Shannon, representing Strangford for the DUP. I thank the Right Honourable Lady for giving way. I spoke to her beforehand to seek her permission to intervene. Does she agree that, although the courts have an overriding duty to promote justice and prevent injustice, the duty to stay an indictment must be used only in extreme and clear circumstances to ensure that there is no abuse of the judicial process. Dame Cheryl Gillen In the context of the debate, the Honourable Gentleman makes a very valid point. My constituent, Mr Perry, was heavily involved in the case of Caldecott School, which was heard in an Aylesbury Crown Court. As a pupil there in the 60s, he and many other boys suffered a very considerable and grave child abuse that has been the subject of criminal proceedings. The minister may recall that in that case, the defendant, former headmaster Mr. Wright, was eventually tried and convicted on the 17th of December 2013 and was sentenced to eight years imprisonment on the 6th of February 2014. I say eventually 
because there were two indictments brought in this case. The first was in 2003 and the second in 2012. Tried in May and June 2013 and retried in November 2013. Of the two indictments, only the second proceeded to trial. The first was stayed by an order made by his honour, Judge Connor, following the application of the defendant and his legal team at a non-evidential pre-trial abuse of process hearing in Aylesby Crown Court on the 26th of September 2003. In criminal proceedings, an order to stay an indictment results in the termination of that indictment. The counts that related to the extensive abuse suffered at Caldecott School by my constituent, as well as by four other former pupils, were contained in the first indictment, which was stayed. That meant that the history of abuse suffered at the school by my constituent and the other former pupils was never heard in open court. Not unnaturally, my constituent and the other former pupils were deeply unhappy with their outcome. My constituent was even more unhappy about that negative outcome because it later emerged that the court had been gravely misled by the failure of the defence which applied for the stay to disclose relevant information to the court. With that information, His Honour Judge Connor might not have considered the stay of the indictment justified. My constituent tells me that all the details of that were set out in correspondence with the Crown Prosecution Service at the time and copied to the Office of the Attorney General. It emerged in particular that before the hearing in September 2003, the defence solicitors, Blazer Mills, had engaged in private correspondence with the school on the subject of the availability of the school records, pupil records, to the defence. Had that correspondence been disclosed to the court, it could have assisted the prosecution in opposing the application for the stay and, in all probability, would have undermined the grounds of the application to stay the proceedings on the indictment. However, neither the judge nor the prosecuting counsel ever saw the correspondence because it was never produced in open court, even though, according to the transcript of the proceedings, the counsel for the defendant, A.J. Bright, Q.C., had it with him in court and was aware of its contents. 
the contents of the hidden correspondence only became known publicly five years later, when in November 2008, the school released it into the public domain. It then became apparent to everyone involved in those proceedings how the non-disclosure meant that the court had been misled and, in effect, deceived into making the order for the stay of the original indictment. That situation was bad enough, but according to my constituent, what followed was arguably worse still. With the trial on the second indictment looming, my constituent and his co-complainants who had resigned themselves to the impossibility of their cases ever being heard in open court, were naturally concerned about the position of the other five former pupils, whose abuse at Caldecott School was the subject of the second indictment. Their concerns grew when it became known that the defence intended to argue that the second indictment should be stayed on the same grounds as had applied to the first indictment. Accordingly, they repeatedly pressed the Crown Prosecution Service to ensure that those submissions made to the judge and accepted by him in the, 2000, in the September 2003 abusive process hearing should be formally corrected to the court. Their argument was that those submissions, which the defence already knew to be false at the 2003 hearing, were now known to be wrong by all parties and the public at large, following the release into the public domain of the correspondence between Caldecott School and the defence solicitors, Blazer Mills. Formal correction of those false submissions was needed to prevent the possibility of the court being misled in the same way that it had been in 2003. Attention was drawn to the explicit wording of both the Solicitor's Regulation Authority Handbook and the Bar Standards Board Handbook. I have made the relevant sections of both available to the Minister and to the professional obligation resting on all solicitors and counsel as officers of the court to correct submissions of fact made to the court once they are known to be erroneous to prevent the court from being misled further. It was noted that no one not even those responsible for making the wrongful submissions in the first place, has been heard to deny that false submissions had been made at the September 2003 hearing, or that the effect of that was that the court was misled and proceeded to rule on the basis of false information. my constituents' complete and abiding astonishment, the Crown Prosecution Service did absolutely nothing. While not disagreeing that the defence had acted improperly 
by telling the judge that the pupil records could not be obtained from the school, or even tacitly accepting that the court had been misled by that, it took no action at all. However, not only were the records available, but in the hidden correspondence that the judge never saw, the defence had actually relinquished its request to be given them. In addition, the Solicitor's Regulation Authority and the Bar Standards Board took no action. Likewise, the Office of the Attorney General, from which at least my constituent might have expected some intervention, given the failure of the regulatory bodies to deal with the situation, did nothing. Only at a much later stage, when the defendant, following his conviction and sentence, applied for leave to appeal to the Court of Appeal, did the Crown Prosecution Service finally agree with the complainants that, if leave to appeal conviction were granted, and if the offence were to argue that the grounds of the imposition of the stay of the indictment in September 2003 were relevant to the appeal. In fact, it transpired that the defence did intend to argue exactly that. It would finally take action. It would require corrections to be made to the false submissions made in 2003 by counsel and solicitors for the defence in order to ensure that the Court of Appeal would not be misled in 2014. However, the appeal did not proceed and in the event, therefore, those corrections were never made. At the request of my constituents, I have referred to what he considers, as I do, the embarrassing irregularities that unexpectedly and unusually came to light in the Caldecott School case, and those have a public profile. I have been led to believe, however, that similar problems were experienced in a number of other cases of lesser profile. My constituent has generously offered to provide the minister with the details, if she so wishes. It is too late now for the complainants in the Caldecott school case to be accorded the simple justice of the correction of known false submissions that were first made to the court, that derailed the first indictment and that they believe denied them justice in 2003. Alex Chalk, representing Cheltenham, for the Conservatives. Will my right honourable friend give way? Dame Cheryl Gillen. I would like to make progress. abiding concern of those complainants, however, is that to their knowledge nothing has been done to prevent the distressing situation in which they found themselves recurring in other cases 
concerning other abused children. The men involved feel rightly aggrieved about the wrongfulness of the law society and the bar and their respective regulators, holding out to the public the existence of certain published professional standards intended for the protection of the public while at the same time appearing in this case to have had no intention of taking any action at all, even when the published professional standards were found unarguably to have been breached. Throughout this case, those men have felt that they have been stonewalled. They have now lost faith in the so-called professional standards. Such matters are the responsibility of the Office of the Attorney General. That can be seen clearly in the begin quotation. Protocol between the Attorney General and the prosecuting departments, end quotation, at page 7, under the heading, begin quotation, for the Superintendents of Casework, end quotation. The Attorney General's responsibilities for superintendents and accountability to Parliament mean that he or she, acting in the wider public interest, needs occasionally to engage with a director, the Director of Public Prosecutions, about a case because it has implications for prosecution or criminal justice policy or practice and or reveals some systemic issues for the framework of the law or the operation of the criminal justice system. End quotation. In the Minister's response, I trust that she will provide the reassurance that is sought by my constituent together with many of his former school colleagues who were the subject of such appalling abuse at Caldecott School. I trust that she will now agree to include in her review the dual problem. First, non-disclosure of relevant facts and matters by the defence in criminal proceedings in situations in which a duty of disclosure rests on the defendant and his legal team Secondly, the apparent impossibility my constituent faced in attempting to procure corrections of the records of the court to solicitors and counsel and the refusal of the solicitor's regulation authority and the bar standards board to assist him in any way. I look forward to hearing the minister's comments on those failures to disclose and on the misleading of the court consequent to the erroneous submissions made to it. The formal confirmation of the minister is needed to reassure my constituent that solicitors and counsel are professionally obligated to make such corrections as soon as possible and that in future, where necessary, 
robust and firm action will be taken by the solicitor's regulation authority and the bar standards board in order to prevent the possibility of any court being misled in that way in future. I hope that the minister, in responding, will bear in mind that I have known my constituent, Mr Perry, for 20 years. I have been dealing with his case and other matters pertaining to him for a long time. He is a man of great honour and integrity, and he has come forward to speak out in public about some horrendous abuse he suffered in childhood, thereby hoping to prevent something similar happening to other children in the future. This is just part of that pattern. I hope that the Minister will give a positive response in this debate. 11.15am The Solicitor General, Lucy Fraser. It is a pleasure to serve under your chairmanship, Mr Robertson. Thank my right honourable friend, the member for Chesham and Amersham, Dame Cheryl Gillen, for raising these important issues. I acknowledge the hurt and anger of her constituent and how he feels as a result of what happened to him at school many years ago. Sexual abuse of children by those in positions of authority or power who abuse their position of trust is a devastating crime. I cannot imagine what Mr. Perry has been through, but I commend him, as my right honourable friend has done, for his courage in continuing to speak out about his experiences so as to contribute to the debate on how we improve the criminal justice system for victims. I also understand what she says about her relationship with him, and I am pleased that he has been able to contribute to improvements and to the future of those who have suffered as he has. I am pleased that we have the opportunity today to discuss the concerns expressed by my right honourable friend about disclosure of information in pre-trial abuse of process hearings. friend, the member for Chesham and Amersham, spoke about the broader issues in relation to disclosure. Like her, we are concerned about the broad issue. It is imperative that disclosure in a case is made properly. She correctly identified the fact that last year the Attorney General published a review of disclosure will be publishing further guidelines in due course. My right honourable friend referred in some detail to the case of her constituent, Mr Perry. As she knows, it is not appropriate for me as Solicitor General 
to comment on decisions made by members of the independent judiciary in the two prosecutions of Peter Wright. I understand, however, that the allegations made about the conduct of those representing Peter Wright during the original criminal proceedings in 2003 have been considered by the police. As she said, the Bastards Board and the Solicitor's Regulation Authority. Those are the correct bodies to look at allegations of that nature. Furthermore, in 2012, one of my predecessors as Solicitor General personally considered whether to bring contempt proceedings arising from what the judge was told in 2003 he concluded that there was insufficient evidence to do so. I understand that the trial judge in the proceedings that led to Peter Wright's conviction in 2013, as my right honourable friend said, also considered the arguments that had been employed in the abuse of process application in 2003 declined to lift the stay on proceedings. I am not aware of any adverse findings made against any lawyers involved in the criminal proceedings arising out of the house at Caldecott School between 1959 and 1970. None of that is in any way designed to diminish the profound effect that those crimes must have had on Mr. Perry's life, or to detract from our commitment as law officers superintending the prosecuting departments to promote best practice in the care that victims of sexual assault receive from the criminal justice system. However, the issues that Mr. Perry continues to raise have not been ignored and have received serious consideration in the past. As members know, it is open to a defendant to argue that a prosecution is an abuse of process. For example, because of the effect of delay on the fairness of the trial, and that proceedings should therefore be stayed. That arises from the overriding duty on courts to promote justice and prevent injustice. In these cases, the burden lies on the defendant to prove on the balance of probabilities that there has been an abuse and that a fair trial is no longer possible. There is clear authority from the Court of Appeal that there is a strong public interest in the prosecution of crime and that ordering a stay of proceedings is a remedy of last resort even when where there has been significant delay in bringing proceedings. As the Honourable Member for Strangford, Jim Shannon, pointed out, the bar for a stay is very high. Even when a judge imposes a stay of proceedings, the prosecution can apply to lift the stay in future. A 
as my right honourable friend, the member for Shesherman Amersham, mentioned, such an application was made in Mr Perry's case in 2012. Although the judge declined the prosecution application to lift the stay on the 2003 proceedings, she allowed the fresh allegations against Peter Wright to be tried by a jury and also allowed details of the abuse that Mr Perry suffered to be admitted as bad character evidence during the trial. As a result, the jury found Peter Wright guilty of abusing five pupils during the 1960s and he was sentenced to eight years imprisonment. My right honourable friend makes some important observations about disclosure in the criminal justice system. Honourable members will be aware that the Attorney General recently carried out a review of disclosure and made recommendations to improve performance across the criminal justice system. In our criminal justice system, there's a statutory duty on prosecutors to disclose to the defence any material or information that may assist the defence or undermine the prosecution case. That duty applies to abusive process hearings as well as trials. There is also a residual duty on the prosecution at common law to disclose any information that would assist the accused in the preparation of the defence case. That duty applies from the outset in criminal proceedings and requires the disclosure of material that might enable an accused to make an early application to stay the proceedings as an abusive process. Alex Chalk The Minister is quite properly setting out the duties on the prosecution entirely accurately and fairly. Does she agree that there is a duty, however, on all parties to ensure that what they submit does not in any way mislead the court? And that applies to the defence, just as it does to the Crown. The Solicitor General My honourable friend makes an important point that I will come on to. It is absolutely right that counsel or solicitor must not mislead the court. As officers of the court with a primary duty to the court and not to their client. But the disclosure of evidence is a different obligation on the defence. There is no corresponding legal duty on the defence to disclose information that is harmful to its case, because that is consistent with the fundamental principle that it is for the prosecution to prove its case, and not for a defendant to prove their innocence. As my right honourable friend, the member for Chesham and Amersham, rightly identified, there is an important duty on counsel and barristers. They have a professional code of conduct that includes the requirement to act ethically and with integrity at all times. 
and includes a prohibition on knowingly or recklessly misleading anyone, including a court, and a positive duty to behave in a way that maintains public trust and confidence in the proper administration of justice. My right honourable friend mentioned that her constituent may have details of other cases where a court has been misled. I strongly encourage her to share those details with the Crown Prosecution Service and the professional bodies responsible for barristers and solicitors. Dame Cheryl Gillen I am grateful to the Minister for the way in which she is responding. She mentioned that it is important to maintain trust in the regulatory bodies. In the light of the circumstances of this case, does she agree that trust has been shaken? I will provide her with those details once my constituent provides them, so that she may pass them on to the relevant authorities or look at them herself, because it is from her office that I believe my constituent wishes to have a response. Let's move on to another part of Hansard. We'll stay within the same volume. Volume 660. Oral Questions on the topic of Northern Ireland. In particular, the security situation. The 22nd of May, 2019, volume 660. Rebecca Powell, representing Taunton Dean for the Conservatives. First question, what recent assessment she has made of the security situation in Northern Ireland? Mark Menzies, slide for the Conservatives. Second question, what recent assessment she has made of the security situation in Northern Ireland? Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Karen Bradley. The threat from dissident Republican terrorism continues to be severe in Northern Ireland after the appalling killing of Larry McKee. This government's first priority is to keep people safe and secure. Vigilance against this continuing threat is essential 
and we remain determined to ensure that terrorism never succeeds. Rebecca Powell I congratulate my right honourable friend on securing the £109 million of UK government funding for the new Derry slash London Derry City Deal and the Inclusive Future Fund. Does she agree that it is vital that we provide young people with the jobs and skills they need to move on in the future in a world that is rejecting violence and that all these things will help? Karen Bradley My honourable friend makes a very important point. I am sure that she will have heard the words of Father Martin McGill at the funeral of Lyra McKee. He said that young people need jobs, not guns. It is exactly right that we should focus our efforts on providing jobs as well as tackling terrorism so that we can give those young people the alternative to violence so that they can have a future that is fit for them. Mark Menzies Does my right honourable friend agree that the police service of Northern Ireland is doing an outstanding job and showing tremendous courage and professionalism in dealing with violence and dissident activity? What can the government do to support the PSNI to ensure that it faces down the dissidents and people who are spreading hatred and violence. Karen Bradley My honourable friend is absolutely right. This government's first priority is to keep people safe and secure across the whole United Kingdom. Saw incredible bravery from the police service of Northern Ireland on the night of Lyra McKee's killing. Although the police faced an onslaught of petrol bombs and shooting towards them, they got out of their vehicles to try to save Lyra, and we all owe them a debt of gratitude. We need to see people across Northern Ireland working with the PSNI to stamp out terrorism and the government stands steadfast in our commitment to assisting that work. Sir Geoffrey M. Donaldson, Larkin Valley, for the DUP. It is vital that we give the right message to young people. However, we have recently seen, yet again, shots being fired over coffins at funerals and before funerals by IRA and INLA terrorists using weapons that were supposed to have been decommissioned. 
is it not incumbent on all political parties in Northern Ireland, including Sinn Féin, to make it clear that such paramilitary displays with weapons are harmful to our society and send out the wrong message to young people and should stop immediately. Karen Bradley I agree with the right honourable gentleman that these outward displays of violence are not acceptable. What I saw after Lyra's killing was the community coming together and rejecting these outward displays, leading to the cancellation of the proposed march through Londonderry on Easter Monday. Lady Harmon, representing North Down as an independent. I am sure that the Secretary of State will have had a briefing earlier today, or indeed perhaps yesterday, from the Chief Constable of the Police Service of Northern Ireland about the security situation in Northern Ireland. In that context, would the Secretary of State update the people of Northern Ireland about the success of the PSNI in stopping the spate of automated teller machine thefts and apprehending those responsible? Such an update would be very welcome. Karen Bradley lady is absolutely right that I saw the chief constable yesterday and I share her concern about the issue. This is an ongoing operational matter, 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 but the actions of the PSNI are to be applauded. Mr. Owen Patterson representing North Shropshire for the Conservatives. The whole House will share the Secretary of State's admiration for all the officers of the PSNI and of the Garda, Shuchana, who have stopped numerous hideous incidents over recent months and years. What assessment has she made of the PSNI's morale and of the situation for recruitment to the PSNI and other security forces? Should there be a different regime for the veterans of Operation Banner compared with other military operations in other theatres? Karen Bradley seen that the PSNI conduct a very difficult job. I'm always pleased to have the chance to meet police officers, particularly at Strand Road in Londonderry, where I have made a number of visits following dreadful incidents that we have seen in that city. 
and to hear the camaraderie and commitment shown by those individuals. I am determined that we will deal with the matters regarding the legacy of Operation Banner appropriately, lawfully, and in a way that reflects exactly the commitment that we see today from the police service of Northern Ireland. Vernon Coker, representing Gedling for Labour. Is it not one of the challenges for dealing with the security situation in Northern Ireland? To build the confidence of communities right across Northern Ireland. Working with the police service of Northern Ireland and others. In the face of recent terrible events, we have seen the community doing that. But what more can the Secretary of State do to encourage communities to work with the security forces? Karen Bradley The Honourable Gentleman, I know, has great experience in this area. And he is right that we do need to see cooperation between communities and the Police Service of Northern Ireland. We did see a real step change following that appalling killing where people were welcoming the PSNI into their homes. But it is an incredibly difficult job. We need to make sure that the Inclusive Future Fund, the £55 million that the government have committed to Derry slash London Derry is used in part to support those activities. Tony Lloyd, representing Ro- Rushdale for Labour. The Secretary of State will know that the security situation depends on, among other things, the perception that the police and the judicial process are independent. Families of victims of the troubles of the past are, in many cases, still waiting for answers. Does she agree that those families, those young people, who can be pulled into terrorist acts, would be influenced dramatically if they believed that there was a rule saying that there would be a statute of limitations for state actors when, quite rightly, we seek to prosecute those who have perpetrated either murder or manslaughter from whatever background. Karen Bradley The Honourable Gentleman will know that this government are committed to implementing the institutions that were agreed at Stormont House. We have had a consultation on that matter and received more than 17,000 responses, individual personal responses, 
We will publish the summary of those consultation respondents in due course. On the topic of employment trends, the 22nd of May 2019, volume 660. Representing Harborough for the Conservatives. What recent assessment she has made of trends in the level of employment in Northern Ireland. The Minister of State, Northern Ireland Office, John Penrose. to confirm that the latest labour market statistics for Northern Ireland show employment at a record high and unemployment at a record low. This is a long-term and consistently improving trend, and with continued political stability, we hope that it will continue in future. Neil O'Brien is a very welcome statistics. What is my honourable friend doing to further grow employment and jobs in Northern Ireland and the rest of the country? John Penrose I am delighted to give some examples. Not only is unemployment now the lowest of the UK nations at 2.9%, but the ratio of public sector to private jobs, private sector jobs, is rebalancing healthily. Exports have grown to more than £10 billion, and we expect a tourism surge from the Gulf Open at Port Rush. We will continue to pursue those and other measures, including the city deals that have just been mentioned. Mr Gregory Campbell, East Derry slash London Derry for the DUP. are improving, as the Minister has said, but does he agree that we need to attract above average salary levels now to try to grow the economy? In that respect, the Heathrow Logistics Hub is an excellent project. Will he join me in pressing and persuading those behind the hub Kelly, which is a very attractive environment. John Penrose. The Honourable Gentleman is a doughty battler for his constituents and for his constituency. I am sure that those involved will have heard his words and will be considering them carefully. But he is right about that and many other examples of important
important local investment in Northern Ireland. On the topic of devolved government. 22nd of May 2019, volume 660, Bob Blackman, representing Harrow East, for the Conservatives. What recent progress she has made on restoring devolved government in Northern Ireland. Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Karen Bradley. The short, focused set of roundtable talks aimed at restoring devolution continues. Northern Ireland's five main political parties have reaffirmed their commitment to restoring a power-sharing executive and the other political institutions set out in the Belfast Agreement. Bob Blackman I thank my right honourable friend for her answer and for the work that she has done thus far. Does she agree that it is absolutely vital to get devolved government working as soon as possible so that the victims of historical institutional abuse receive full and fair compensation for what they have suffered. Karen Bradley I do agree with my honourable friend that we need to see the restoration of the institutions. I also agree that we need to see fair redress for those victims of historical institutional abuse. I have met those victims. Their stories are heartrending and absolutely dreadful. No one should have suffered the way that they did. devolution to take action in this matter. I am determined that we will do everything we can for those victims of historical abuse and that we will take measures forward as soon as possible and not wait for restored devolution. Nigel Dodds Representing Belfast North for the DUP. On that subject, the Secretary of State and, indeed, the whole House will be aware of the sense of outrage that there is across the entire community in Northern Ireland and among the victims of abuse about our approach to this issue in recent days. Frankly, many people are saying that far too much time has already elapsed. Given the fact that she has the ability to make this move faster 
are outraged at the idea of having to wait another couple of years, as she appeared to indicate. Will she now undertake to bring forward measures immediately to deal with this issue? determined that we will act as soon as we can. The two years the right honourable gentleman referred to is an estimate by the civil service of Northern Ireland. It is not an estimate that I have put forward. As he will know, following the end of the consultation, I ask the head of the civil service in Northern Ireland to conduct. A number of decisions need to be taken. Decisions that require ministerial input. I have asked the five parties in Northern Ireland to assist me in getting a resolution to these questions as soon as possible. So that I can act as soon as possible. Secretary of State will be aware that this is one, but probably the most terrible example of a whole series of decisions that have cross-community and cross-party support, but that she has refused to do anything about, even though this place and her government are responsible for the administration of Northern Ireland. The fact of the matter that people are being told that she has now placed another series of questions that need to be answered. And people see this as further delay. What are the questions that she now wants further answers to? Who originated these questions? to me to enable 
dilemma for the victims as soon as possible. Maria Caulfield, representing Lewis, for the Conservatives. The head of the civil service in Northern Ireland, David Sterling, has asked for legislation to be made in this place. When the Secretary of State talks about action on historical institutional abuse, is she talking about bringing legislation through this house? Karen Bradley I have said on many occasions that I am prepared to do the legislation wherever it is quickest that we do it. I want to see redress for these victims as soon as possible. But there are some fundamental questions that David Sterling has posed that need answers. And I will get to those answers more quickly if I have the support and cooperation of the parties in Northern Ireland working with me. she act and act now so that these good people can get some sense of justice before more of them die. Karen Bradley I know the sense of outrage. I have met those victims. I want to see action. in Northern Ireland when they were in government set up an inquiry. It is absolutely right that they did that and I applaud them for doing so. There is an opportunity for us to make progress on this quickly but I cannot do it alone. I need the guidance and support of those in the parties in Northern Ireland, because ultimately they will be the ministers who will have to implement whatever institutions and whatever system is created. I need their support so that we can make progress quickly. Representing Ealing North for Labour. 
The house will be aware that today, that the very day, is the 21st anniversary of that occasion, when a sunshine ray of hope pierced the dark clouds in Northern Ireland, and the Good Friday Agreement was ratified. And we must give the victims and survivors some of that hope. Secretary of State that she will have the support of Labour members, but can she please bring this forward and end the agony and misery of these survivors and victims? Karen Bradley I am very grateful for the Honourable Gentleman's offer of support. We spoke about this matter yesterday. School Funding The 22nd of May 2019 Volume 660 3.31pm John Howell Representing Henley For the Conservatives I present a petition signed by just under 1,000 residents of Henley-on-Thames in Oxfordshire and friends of the schools in the Henley area to try to remove once and for all issues over school funding. The petition states of residents of Henley-on-Thames, Oxfordshire, and of friends of the schools in the Henley area, declares that a funding review is needed in relation to the schools in the Henley constituency. Further, that this school funding review should address how funding increases will be made 
in relation to schools in the Henley constituency in real terms, beyond the amounts already being spent on schools, and how to eliminate the gap between the best and lowest funded schools in the constituency. Further, that there must be a review of areas of inflationary pressures and situations where schools provide additional services such as social care or deal with criminal behaviour to examine the real costs of providing education. Further, that there must be an assessment into the extent and access to capital funding. Further, that the basic entitlement must form an appropriate percentage of the national funding formula used locally. Further, that the Department and Treasury must ensure that small primary schools in the constituency remain integral to their communities. The petitioners therefore request that the House of Commons to ask the Department of Education and the Treasury to conduct a review of school funding in Henley that addresses the issue stated above in advance of the comprehensive spending review and further requests that the findings of this review are communicated to the House of Commons and the petitioners remain etc. Funding for Russell Hall Primary School, the 22nd of May, 2019, volume 660, 3.33pm. Judith Cummings, representing Bradford South for Labour. I rise to present a petition on behalf of teachers and staff at Russell Hall Primary School in Queensbury, in my constituency. This petition has been signed by every single teacher and every single member of support staff at the school who are extremely concerned that this government's cuts to school funding are having a detrimental effect on the school's ability to provide pupils with a well-rounded education. I hope that the government will listen to the experts, the teachers, parents and children across the country and stop these funding cuts. The petition states, Petition of Residents of the United Kingdom 
declares that Russell Hall Primary School has seen a decline in funding per pupil and a reduction in the lump sum allocated to the school by almost £65,000 in 2018 to 2019 and by the same in 2019 to 2020. Further, that the school is facing a significant deficit budget and is having to make staff redundancies to save money, including the reduction of vital frontline teaching staff, the restructure of support staff roles, and the end of additional services currently available to children, such as the Early Bird Club. Petitioners therefore request that the House of Commons urges the government to increase per pupil funding and reverse the cuts made to school budgets. And the petitioners remain, etc. listening to Hansard but Sleepy, for people who love Parliament and for people who love sleep. If you've enjoyed listening to Hansard but Sleepy, please consider subscribing on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts and all major podcasting channels. text of Hansard is available for free online under parliamentary copyright from Hansard Online. Sleep well.